speaking and, and trying to bring you to where we're headed tonight. Uh, they'll be bringing around snack, so don't be distracted, pay attention, but they'll be bringing around water and candy canes and ice cream, so feel free to sit and enjoy yourself while we're, while we're dealing with this. And um, the challenge for us is to realize that those questions that we struggle with, the son of David, King Solomon, said there's nothing new under the sun. The fact that we struggle today with questions, many times these are not questions that have not already been struggled with, but perhaps in a different form. In other words, they may not have struggled about, in the Old Testament, whether to trim a Christmas tree or build a nativity or give gifts, whether to tell stories about an odd man that can travel around the world in one night, which he can't. They struggled with what do we do, what sets us apart, and what do we do when we disagree? You'll remember my opening statement to you. Christmas is a cultural celebration of a biblical event. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ, God, with us, was born a human. That's a fact. You're sitting in a church that we believe that God really was born a human. And as a result, he entered into our world and he participated in our reality and he was a part of our existence. But we're missing, I think intentionally, from his part. Rosh, could I have one of those? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Is it St. Nicholas or is it Santa or is it Klaus or who are you? Oh, my goodness. Is that an Iranian? Thank you, Arash. Oh, it's Baba. Yes, I just heard Kale. It's Baba. Very clearly. So, we're missing a massive amount of data. We don't know what year he was born. We don't know what day he was born. The biblical narrative is not crystal clear on what exactly was meant by a manger. We do understand swaddling clothes pretty well. But we're missing all kinds of things. Some of them we even miss in the details of the narrative itself because we so many times put together the shepherds and the wise men and everything of the biblical narrative seems to point to that they were two very separate occasions separated by, could be up to a couple of years. So when we are missing so much data, and when a biblical event that has no guardrails, it has no instructions, we have instructions about celebrating the Lord's Supper. Jesus gave them. In fact, we're told every time we take the bread and we drink the cup, we remember the Lord's death until he comes. 
And as often as you do it, you do it unto me, he says. But we have none of that with regard to Christmas. In fact, two of the gospel writers leave the story of the birth of Jesus completely out of the narrative. Jesus just pops on the scene at age 30. He's not even a baby. And even the ones who include it skip from the time he's about two until he's 30, except for Luke gives us one little story where, frankly, Jesus was, well, he acted in a way that my wife would prefer her children not act. He ran off, he hid out in the temple, and he caused his parents great consternation. And then, fast forward, it goes till he's 30. So what are we to do with this? And last week I presented you with history, and, and I, I, in one sense, apologize, and in one sense I don't apologize, because you are pastored by a man who I've spent a lot of time studying. And I know my history, and it's really consternating because those early Christians did stuff that, frankly, make me uncomfortable. Paul writes Scripture in a way that I tell every one of my theology students, you may not write that way. Your biblical exegesis cannot make that kind of leap. You may not make that kind of argument. You may not preach those kinds of sermons. Because the reality is, is that Christianity spans a very, very long time. In fact, when you embrace its Hebrew roots, it literally is covering thousands of years with a massive diversity of culture. So no guardrails, lots of culture, and then we reach our modern era, we reach the time that we live in now, and like I said last week, we are surprised that a culture that is preoccupied with money takes its holidays and turns it into a money-making venture. And Christmas is not the only one, by the way. How many of you know about Valentine's Day? Same thing. Make a boatload of money on Valentine's Day. What about the 4th of July? Boatload of money on that too. Fireworks, etc. Every one of our holidays has become commercial. Every one of our festivals has become a festival. So, allow me tonight to take us from history to Scripture. This is what you would expect from me. So let's take a look. And the first example of this is in a church that Paul corrects because they are divided. They are divisive. There is sin in their midst, and the sin comes from the fact that they are divided. And this is the church of Corinth. This is the church I jokingly say, I am so thankful I do not pastor Corinth, because pastoring Corinth would be very hard. Paul has all kinds of divisions happening in the church at Corinth. And he writes to them about these divisions, and one of them has to do with a question that has nothing to do with Christmas. And yet the principle is identical. Should we eat meat offered to idols? And there were Christians who said, sure. And there were Christians who said, no. How did Paul address this? What did he say? I think it's instructive for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 
And I did use Eugene Peterson's The Message because he's quite colorful in how it puts it, and I think it, it brings it down to a level that maybe we can appreciate just a little bit in our vernacular of today. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he says, the question keeps coming up regarding meat that has been offered up to an idol. Should you attend meals where such meat is served or not? It's a classic question with a principle behind it that I think is at the heart of this question of what are we to do with Christmas? Should we celebrate it or not? How should we celebrate it or not? What do we do when we don't agree? He says we sometimes tend to think we know all we need to know to answer these kinds of questions, but sometimes our humble hearts can help us more than our proud minds. I hope everybody listened to what I just read, but don't throw any stones at me. That was Paul, not me. He immediately looks at the Corinthians. He says, you will not get to the right answer if you are proud and not humble. If you think out of the gate, you know already what the answer is, then you're going to get yourself into trouble. We never really know enough until we recognize that God alone knows it all. So my opening statement to you with Paul is, when it comes to any question that has no clear direction from Scripture, we would do well to be humble. Yeah, I'm going to let that sit for a minute. We all would do well to be humble. You see, I'm not talking about repentance, baptism in Jesus' name, the infilling of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues, and even the call to pursue a holy life. No, we're into the areas in which we have principles, and depending on how you do this cultural celebration of a biblical event, you could be being obedient to principles that say no and principles that say yes. This is why I've heard some of you went, oh my goodness, Elder Beardsley never touched this one. I can't believe he's going here. Yeah, this is a third rail for a preacher. You know that terminology from politics? It's a third rail. You get on it, you're going to get electrocuted. Well, you all know I'm crazy anyway, so here we go. Because we are building something here in Newark, Delaware, that requires us to know how to stay unified when we don't agree. I'm talking about things that the Bible's clear cut on. I'll stand by that and I will preach it and I'll live by it. But then there are other things. What do we do with these? Should I eat meat? Should I not eat meat? And the Corinthian church is splitting apart over this question and many others. And Paul says, let's start by everybody taking a breath and humbling yourself because only God really knows everything. And a humble heart is going to help you more than a proud mind. Verse number four, 
He says, some people say, quite rightly, uh, that idols have no actual existence, that there's nothing to them, that there is no God other than our one God, that no matter how many of these so-called gods are named and worshipped, they still don't add up to anything but a tall story. Which, by the way, is true. There is only one God. Amen? There's only one God. There are no other gods. All the rest are imposters. They're devils acting like they're God, and we know they're not real. So Paul's exactly right, and so are the others. They say again, quite rightly, that there is only one God, the Father, that everything comes from him, and that he wants us to live for him. Also, they say that there is only one master, Jesus the Messiah, and that everything is for his sake, including us. Yes, it's true. In strict logic, then, Paul says, nothing happened to the meat when it was offered up to an idol. It's just like any other meat. I know that, and you know that. But knowing isn't everything. If it becomes everything, some people end up as know-it-alls who treat others as know-nothings. I'm resisting the temptation to read that again to all of us. And if you think you don't do that, i got news for you. The scripture says, every man and every woman thinks they're right in their own eyes. So yes, we do. Everybody look at your neighbor and go, I do it. Come on. Be honest with yourself. We think we know better than our neighbor. And know-it-alls, well, we treat others as if they know nothing. And we do it, we do it, we do it, we do it. So let's just be honest about it. We struggle with it. He goes on, he says, real knowledge isn't that insensitive. Oh, sensitivity. So sensitivity matters? Yes, it does. We need to be sensitive to the fact that we're not all at the same level of understanding in this. Some of you have spent your entire lives eating, quote, idol meat, end quote and are sure that there's something bad in the meat that then becomes something bad inside of you. And imagination and conscience shaped under those conditions isn't going to change overnight. So people who have been actively participating in idol worship may even be struggling to believe the message that there really is only one God because they've got no problem adding gods. But you see, the message of Jesus Christ is not there's another God. The message of Jesus Christ is, there's only one God, and all the others don't exist. So they're struggling. They've, they've worshipped these other gods, and they're, they're having trouble letting go of it. He says, not everybody's at the same spot. Their conscience, their thoughts have been formed in a particular way, and it's not going to change overnight. But fortunately, God doesn't grade us on our diet. We're neither commended when we clean our plate, nor reprimanded when we just can't stomach it. Did you hear that, Mom? God doesn't even commend me when I clean my plate. You may, but God doesn't. By the way, my wife loves that my mother taught me that, because you know what I do at dinner? My wife gets done eating her plate, and I go, aren't you going to eat that? She never cleans her plate. My plate barely needs any washing. I look down on her for that. There's something wrong with her. Don't you know you're supposed to eat it? If you don't eat it, the children in Ethiopia somehow are more hungry. 
My conscience was formed under that for many, many years. It's hard to change my mind. Clean your plate, woman. To which she looks at me and says, no. I'm full, I'm done. Go mind your own business. Fortunately, God doesn't grade us on our diet. But God does care when you use your freedom carelessly in a way that leads to a fellow believer still vulnerable to those old associations to be thrown off track. For instance, say you flaunt your freedom by going to a banquet thrown in honor of idols where the main course is meat sacrificed to idols. Isn't there a great danger if someone's still struggling over this issue, someone who looks up to you as knowledgeable and mature, isn't there going to be a problem if they see you going into that banquet? The danger is that while he will become terribly confused, maybe even to the point of getting mixed up himself in what his conscience tells him is wrong. So your actions, done in knowledge, which Paul agrees with the knowledge, says it may provide a stumbling block. It may cause someone to get back involved in idolatry, in sin. Christ gave up his life for that person. Wouldn't you at least be willing to give up going to dinner for him? Because as you say, it doesn't really make any difference. But it does make a difference if you hurt your friend terribly, risking his eternal ruin. When you hurt your friend, you hurt Christ. A free meal here and there isn't worth it at the cost of every one, of even one of these weak ones. So never go to these idol-tainted meals if there's any chance it will trip up one of your brothers or sisters. And for many of us, that's where we stop. We go, there it is. If there's even a chance that I'm going to offend Brother Keith, I'm not going to do it. So the most offendable person within the body sets the behavior of the whole body. Well, first of all, you got to keep reading. And part of the reason we don't keep reading is because chapter 9, in very classic Pauline fashion, shifts gears. And it goes off in a whole other subject. So you think Paul's off on another subject. But then, in classic Pauline fashion, he loops back around to the same topic again. So fast forward to chapter 10, verse 15. He didn't even have the good sense to start at the beginning of the chapter. I'm glad some of you are still paying attention and got the joke I just made there. If you didn't get it, come see me afterwards. I'll tell you what was funny about it. And if you're too proud to come ask, then live on in ignorance. What can I say? 1 Corinthians 10, verse 15, Paul says, I assume I'm addressing believers now who are mature. I assume tonight I am addressing believers who are mature. And can I add to it? If you're not, we're trying to grow you up. He says, draw your own conclusions. When we drink the cup of blessing, aren't we taking into ourselves the blood, the very life of Christ? And isn't it the same with the loaf of bread we break and eat? Don't we take into ourselves the body, the very life of Christ? Because there is one loaf, our manyness becomes oneness. Christ doesn't become fragmented in us. Rather, we become unified in him. We don't reduce Christ to what we are. He raises us to what he is. 
That's basically what happened even in old Israel. Those that ate the sacrifices offered on God's altar entered into God's action at the altar. Do you see the difference? Sacrifices offered to idols are offered to nothing. In case you thought Paul wasn't returning to it, there it is. Same topic, same difference of opinion. Sacrifices offered to idols are offered to nothing. For what's the idol but a nothing? Or worse than nothing, a minus, a demon. I don't want you to become part of something that reduces you to less than yourself. And you can't have it both ways, banqueting with the master one day and slumming with the demons the next. you got to love Eugene Peterson a little bit there. He's quite creative there. Steve, get in that car and get me on live. Follow me down the road, bro. Drive safe. He's got an hour drive back to North Philly, so drive safe, Steve. You can't have it both ways. Besides, the master won't put up with it. He wants us all or nothing. Do you think you can get off with anything less? So you can't serve multiple gods and Jesus. Jesus is an exclusive claim. And Paul says, this is the problem with idolatry. But then he goes on. He says, looking at it one way, you could say anything goes. Because of God's immense generosity and grace, we don't have to dissect and scrutinize every action to see if it will pass muster. But the point is not to just get by. We want to live well. But our foremost effort should be to help others live well. With that as a base to work from, common sense can take you the rest of the way. Eat anything sold at the butcher shop. For instance, you don't have to run an idolatry test on every item. The earth, after all, is God's and everything in it. That everything certainly includes the leg of lamb in the butcher shop. If a non-believer invites you to dinner and you feel like going, go ahead and enjoy yourself. Eat everything placed before you. It would be both bad manners and bad spirituality to cross-examine your host on the ethical purity of each course as it is served. On the other hand, if he goes out of his way to tell you that this or that was sacrificed to God or goddesses, so and so, you should pass. Even though you may be indifferent as to where it came from, he isn't, and you don't want to send mixed messages to him about who you are worshiping. But except for these special cases, I'm not going to walk around on eggshells worrying about what small-minded people might say. Yeah, he said it. I'm going to stride free and easy, knowing what our large-minded master has already said. If I eat what is served to me, grateful to God for what is on the table, how can I worry about someone, what someone will say? I thanked God for it. And he blessed it. So eat your meals heartily, not worrying about what others say about you. You're eating to God's glory, after all, not to please them. As a matter of fact, do everything that way, heartily and freely to God's glory. At the same time, don't be callous in your exercise of freedom, thoughtlessly stop stepping on the toes of those who aren't as free as you are. I try my best to be considerate of everyone's feelings in all these matters. And he says to the Corinthian church, I hope you will be too. 
When you analyze this passage, and I will not spend the time tonight working you all over to make you analyze this. I already did this three times, once in Ghana and twice in Nigeria. I'm not going to do it to you. It takes hours. The bottom line is, is Paul does not say categorically don't eat meat offered to idols or categorically eat meat offered to idols. His answer is, it depends. Now, if Paul's answer to something so intimately involved with a scriptural principle, namely idolatry, is it depends. I'm going to challenge you to pause for a moment and ask yourself, is Christmas really that clear cut? Because we sure don't have near the amount of scripture that we've got about idolatry about Christmas. Could you paint a scenario in which the celebration of Christmas is wrong, is sin? Absolutely. Could you also paint a picture in which Christmas was Christ glorifying, loving others and caring for your community and your family? Certainly. What if we don't see it the same. Paul tells us there are those who have a problem with eating meat offered to idols. And he also tells us that there's not a strong basis in the Bible for us to worry about it because the Bible tells us that that which is an idol is not real and therefore the meat offered to it is offered to nothing. So what's the principle? What, what can we learn from this? Steve, why are you going here instead of answering all of this? Well, first of all, I think it's safe for you to follow me that our actions in Christian liberty should not lead others into sin and consequent bondage. So our actions done in Christian liberty have limits. And those limits are when they lead others into sin and consequent bondage. Which then means that there's a second principle. The key to coexisting with others who don't agree with you is discrete sensitivity. You must discern, you must be sensitive to the needs of others. And then Paul gives us another one, and this is where we went off on the wrong rail. This is the part that some of you, including myself, have to correct our attitudes. Because Paul says the one who is strong and spiritually mature is the one responsible for the weak and spiritually immature. The one who is strong and spiritually mature is the one responsible for the weak and spiritually immature. Now, I want to use yet another example that's a non-Christmas example to examine Paul's instructions to the Corinthians before I come back in on Christmas. 
In response to a period of history, namely the 60s and the hippie movement, some in the Pentecostal movement felt, rightly so in my opinion, at that time and place, that in order to be separate from the world and the hippie movement, we should refrain, well we, as in males, should refrain from wearing facial hair. So if you're sitting here tonight and you have no clue what I'm talking about, I need you to just trust me that in the Pentecostal movement there was an era in which the hippies were very prevalent. The 60s was the main time period. It began in the 50s, and they went past it into the 70s. But in that period, they were characterized by lots of things, hip huggers and bell bottoms and long hair and tie-dye and rock and roll music and Woodstock and free love and a whole lot of other factors. But one of them was long scraggly beards, long hair. And so the church made a choice, which... I didn't live in the 60s. I was born in 1972. So I, I'm very deferential to all of you who did live in the 60s. I wasn't living then. But it makes sense to me the choice the church made. Church took a principle, said, we're going to refrain from looking or acting like the hippies. The Bible didn't spell that out. It's crystal clear within Scripture that, in fact, if you're going to speak scripturally with no relevance to culture, men should wear a beard and you shouldn't trim it. I love how our movement now says, well, I don't mind a beard just as long as it's not scraggly. No, that's explicitly what the Scripture says. Men, you are to wear a beard scraggly. Don't trim it. All right. So, let's get real personal about it, all right? Clearly, that time and era of the 60s is gone. It's over 50 years ago, folks. 50 years ago. Okay? So, y'all see it? Got it? Okay, let's go there. If my wearing a beard is weakness and spiritual immaturity, let's take that as a possibility. How should the strong and spiritually mature Christian who knows that I am wrong treat me and care for me? Our Pentecostal movement, and I mean that, I don't mean just the United Pentecostal Church of which I hold license. I mean our Pentecostal movement writ large. In its attempt to be holy, and I believe in being holy, I am pursuing holiness because without it, I can't see God, and I want to see God. Amen? In an attempt to be holy, they have reversed the roles of the weak and the strong. The strong are offended by the weak, and they use Paul's instructions to the strong as a means of condemning the weak. Here's how it works. You offend me, the strong say to the weak, therefore stop doing what offends me. Paul did not address offense as being defined as disagreement. He addressed offense as causing another to sin. This is not about a difference of opinion. This is about causing a brother or a sister to sin. 
So what sin does my weakness and spiritual immaturity in wearing a beard cause you who are strong and spiritually mature to fall into? you got to answer that because I can't come up with one. I can get where I might cause you problems back in the 60s. You're coming out of the hippie era and, you know, you had a lifestyle, you had hair down your back, you had all this kind of stuff. I get why some of you that lived in the 60s, it may bother you, but I don't see you running out and becoming a hippie again because I'm wearing a beard. In fact, if anything, the reason that you are very sensitive to that area is because you have become strong in that area. So let's assume that I am spiritually immature and that I am carnal and that I'm missing something. What does Paul in Corinthians tell you to do when you are strong and the person is weak? You adapt your behavior to not cause the weak to sin. You don't make your behavior so offensive as you stand for holiness that the weak is judged. We've gotten it flipped. In fact, if you are strong, Paul gives us the impression that you are able to be more tolerant of others who do not see things as you do and are even weak and spiritually immature. The more strong you are, the more tolerant you are able to be. You'll pray for them. You'll tolerate them. You certainly will not judge them, nor are you offended by them. You're strong. The moment you judge them, the moment you are offended by them, You have marked yourself as weak. And just because you've mocked yourself as weak doesn't mean that mine or somebody else's actions is leading you to sin. There's another metric that has to be met. It's not just Rick doesn't like how I look with a beard. How am I causing him to sin? Paul's very clear in Corinthians that the way that you're going to cause a brother or sister to sin if they are weak and struggling with whether there really is only one God is by you eating meat offered to idols, then they may take permission from that and think they can go and worship idols. So in the case of my beard, when others are offended and judge me, here's what I do. I'm kind. I'm compassionate. I pray for them. I refuse to be offended by them because I am strong. I'm not being prideful. I am choosing to live out my Christianity as authentically as I possibly can. Somebody could ask, should you not stop wearing the beard? When I can figure out what sin I'm causing them to fall into, I will gladly remove my beard. I've never had a single person come to me and say, Steve or Dr. Beardsley or Pastor Beardsley or any other name they want to call me. You are causing me to do X, Y, or Z because 
you're wearing a beard. That is never what they do. If they have the courage to speak to me, and I understand I'm a little scary, so most people don't say anything. They just look at me and walk on by. It's usually there's something wrong with you. I know better than you. You're a pastor. What are you doing? It's Phariseeism. It's not them appealing, I'm sinning because of your beard. It's not what happens. Most people who desire me to remove my beard consider themselves strong, spiritually mature, and more holy than I am. And if I asked them if they were weak, they would be incensed at the fact that I asked them if they were weak. They are strong. They are holy. They know God more than I do. Why? Because I see something different than they do. Consequently, please pay attention. I'm about to whip around on you. You all worked with me long enough. You know I'm about to come around the corner on you. Consequently, they say to themselves, I have no need of caring for him. Because in their eyes, I am the weak. But Paul said, if I am the weak, if I'm less spiritually mature, if I'm lacking in revelation or knowledge or understanding, then they should be caring for me. Not making it hard to be a part of the body. But I will still care for them without allowing their judgment to rule me. Unless I can figure out that I'm causing them to sin. And you hear me. You hear me in this audience. You hear me across the internet. The moment somebody can show me how I'm causing somebody to sin, I will shave my beard again. And I will sacrifice the breakouts on my face and my preferences for my brother. But you got to show me how I'm causing you to sin. Because Paul didn't say the strong dictate to the weak in order to make the weak holy. Paul said the strong curb their license and freedom in order to not be an offense to the weak, in order that the weak can be saved. If I'm truly weak, then you need to help me get to heaven, not send me packing for my lack of holiness. Now, let us return to the topic at hand. A biblical event, the birth of Jesus, in a cultural celebration, Christmas. How's this work? Well, Paul doesn't just talk about it in Corinth. He also writes a letter to the Romans. Which, by the way, historically, we think the reason Romans is so Jewish and we think the audience is Gentile is because some of the Jews that got the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost or actually were there and heard it and then received the word from Peter were, in fact, Jews from Rome. And they went back and theories are is that actually they converted one or two Jewish synagogues. So at the core of the Roman church, which, by the way, history bears this out because the Roman church, believe it or not, stayed one God longer than any other church. They did not go Trinitarian as quickly as all the other churches did. And I think the reason is, is because it had Jewish roots. 
the core of that church was a Jewish synagogue or two. So Paul's writing to a church that's very concerned with culture. So is Paul. Paul is proud of his Jewishness. Paul is an opinionated person. Paul is so opinionated, he doesn't even listen to his teacher Gamaliel and goes the opposite direction of what he says is wisdom. But you know, when you run into Jesus on the road to Damascus and he knocks you on your keister and he declares to you, I'm the Lord, it tends to get your attention and suddenly you're scratching your head going, oh, maybe some of the things I thought I knew, I don't know. Maybe some of the things that were so certain in my mind, maybe they're not so certain. Maybe God cares more about me loving the other than he does about me holding my opinion. So he writes to this Roman church, which is kind of questioning him. They're not sure about him. They're not sure they trust him. He teaches funny things. He has things happen. He says this. I couldn't make this up if I tried. You ready? Everybody fasten your seatbelts. Here's the opening statement. Welcome with open arms, fellow believers who don't see things the way you do. Hi, everybody. We're going to obey Paul. We're going to open our arms and we're going to welcome believers who don't see things the way we do. We're not talking about doctrine here. Celebrating Christmas or not celebrating Christmas is not doctrine. Get me the scripture. Till you get it to me, it is a biblical event that's culturally celebrated. And like all good humans, you've got a nose and maybe two opinions. And we're not going to agree. None of us are. And those of you that want to celebrate, watch your pride. And those of you that don't want to celebrate, watch your pride. Those of you that think those who do not want to celebrate, something's wrong. How can you not want to celebrate this beautiful time of the year? Caution, humble, slow down. The other person matters more than you. And the person who says, how can they be holy? How can they be spiritual? How can they not see all of this pagan stuff that's all in there? Oh my God, they are just, they're going to hell. Slow down. Humble yourself. We don't have any explicit scripture. You know why? Because there was no celebration of Christmas when the scriptures were written. There was nothing to write about. They did write about idolatry, and they did write about eating meat to idols, and Paul said, well, sometimes you can and sometimes you can't. If you go into the guy's house and he doesn't tell you that it's offered to idols, even if he lives next door to the butcher who services the temple, eat away, buddy. You know very well it's been offered to idols, but eat without any problem. But on the other hand, if he tells you that it is, you don't want to send that guy a signal that you worship idols, so refrain. Context is going to matter. The other person is going to matter. More than your license or freedom 
to celebrate or not celebrate. Welcome with open arms, fellow believers who don't see things the way you do. And don't jump all over them every time they do or say something you don't agree with. Even when it seems that they are strong on opinions but weak in the faith department. Remember, they have their own history to deal with. Treat them gently. For instance, a person who's been around for a while might well be convinced that he can eat anything on the table, while another with a different background might assume that he should only be, eaten, only be a vegetarian and eat accordingly. But since both are guests at Christ's table, wouldn't it be terribly rude if they fell to criticizing what the other ate or didn't eat? God, after all, invited them both to the table. Do you have any business crossing people off the guest list or interfering with God's welcome? If there are corrections to be made or manners to be learned, God can handle that without your help. Or say one person thinks that some days should be set aside as holy and another thinks that each day is pretty much like any other. There are good reasons either way. So each person is free to follow the conviction of conscience. What's important in all this is that if you keep a holy day, keep it for God's sake. If you eat meat, eat it to the glory of God and thank God for prime rib. If you're a vegetarian, eat vegetables to the glory of God and thank God for broccoli. Now, ladies and gentlemen, please understand, Paul didn't literally write broccoli there, okay? Eugene Peterson is helping you get the point. For me, it would not be broccoli, it would be Brussels sprouts. Gag me. None of us are permitted to insist on our own way in these matters. Did you hear me? None of us are permitted to insist on our own way in these matters. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm telling you right now in all honesty, and I mean this kindly, but I mean this stridently. If Paul says that about meat offered to idols, the celebration of Christmas is way down the pecking order. It don't even come close. It's God we are answerable to, all the way from life to death and everything in between, not each other. That's why Jesus lived and he died and then he lived again, so that he could be our master across the entire range of life and death and free us from the petty tyrannies of each other. So, where does that leave you when you criticize a brother? And where does that leave you when you condescend to a sister? I'd say it leaves you looking pretty silly or worse. Eventually, we're all going to end up kneeling side by side in the place of judgment facing God. Your critical and condescending ways aren't going to improve your position there one bit. Read it for yourself in the scripture. And Paul quotes, as, it is, as I live and breathe, God says, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will tell the honest truth that I and only I am God. So tend to your knitting. You've got your hands full just taking care of your own life before God. 
Forget about deciding what's right for each other. Here's what you need to be concerned about, that you don't get in the way of someone else, making life more difficult than it already is. I'm convinced, Jesus convinced me, that everything as it is in itself is holy. That's quite a statement by a Jew. It sounds like what God said to Peter as he lowered the sheet down in the vision. says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, no, I don't eat that stuff. God says, what I call clean, don't you call unclean. We, of course, by the way, we treat it or talk about it, can contaminate it. If you confuse others by making a big issue over what they eat or don't eat, you're no longer a companion with them in love, are you? These, remember, are persons for whom Christ died. Would you risk sending them to hell over an item in their diet? Don't you dare let a piece of God's blessed food become an occasion of soul poisoning. Would you really risk sending somebody to hell over their attempt to celebrate the birth of their Savior? Would you really send somebody to hell because you cannot be discreetly sensitive to somebody's sensitivity to the celebration of Christmas? Don't you dare, New RQPC, allow culture of any form to be the stumbling block that sends somebody to hell. We're bigger than that. We're called to do better than that. And we will do better than that. Both ways. Wherever you're at in these issues where we do not see eye to eye, you matter more than me. And I matter more than you. God's kingdom isn't a matter of what you put in your stomach for goodness sake. It's what God does with your life as he sets it right, puts it together and completes it with joy. Your task is to single-mindedly serve Christ. Do that and you'll kill two birds with one stone. You'll please God above you and you'll prove your worth to the people around you. So let's agree to use all our energy in getting along with each other. Help others with encouraging words. Don't drag them down by finding fault. You're certainly not going to permit an argument over what is served or not served at supper to wreck God's work among you, are you? I said it before and I'll say it again. All food is good, but I can turn bad. It can turn bad if you use it badly. If you use it to trip others up and send them sprawling, when you sit down to a meal, your primary concern should not be to feed your own face, but to share the life of Jesus. So be sensitive and courteous to the others who are eating. Don't eat or say or do things that might interfere with the free exchange of love. Cultivate your own relationship with God, but don't impose it on others. Cultivate your own relationship with God, but don't impose that cultivated relationship with God on others. You're fortunate if your behavior and your belief are coherent. Listen to him. He's, he's amazing here. But if you're not sure, if you notice that you're acting in ways inconsistent with what you believe, some days trying to impose your opinions on others, other days just trying to please them. 
then you know that you're out of line. If the way you live isn't consistent with what you believe, then it's wrong. Cultivate, verse 22, your own relationship with God, but don't impose it on others. You're fortunate if your behavior and your belief are coherent. That means to me is there's a lot of times it's not coherent. That's why we're humble. That's why we hear our master say, take care of the moat, excuse me, take care of the beam that is in your eye before you go doing surgery on your brother or your sister's eye. But if you're not sure, if you notice that you are acting in ways inconsistent with what you believe, some days trying to impose your opinion on others, and then other days just trying to please them, then you know that you're out of line. If the way you live isn't consistent with what you believe, then it's wrong. Here's my closing comments. Caring for one another is the fulfillment of Jesus' command to love one another. And in the caring relationship of the body of Christ, we should endeavor to be strong, caring for others as though they are weak. Every one of us should be endeavoring to be strong, caring for others as though they are weak. But, let me put it to you differently. While I care for you as weak, I respect you as strong. I demand of myself strength so that I then am kind and caring and forgiving and gentle. But I acknowledge that I may be weak. But when I'm weak, The proper response is not for you to judge me or attack me or belittle me. It is to help me to get to heaven. That way, if we do this, if we care for one another as though we are weak, demanding of ourselves that we are strong, while acknowledging that we, in fact, may be weak and counting on our brothers and sisters to be strong for us, this way, in matters not clearly defined or applied by Scripture, you and I will fulfill Paul's instructions to welcome with open arms fellow believers who don't see things the way we do. So I return to my opening question from last week. Did we sin? I don't know. Because that question can only be answered individually by each person. And the only place we could have sinned is not in our activities, but it is in how we cared or did not care for the person we disagreed with. Those who refrain from celebrating Christmas, how did you care for those celebrating a biblical event in a cultural manner? Those who celebrate Christmas, how did you care for those who refrain? Well, I didn't do anything, I know, but what did you think in your mind and in your heart? So I end my, with my opening question rephrased. Are you sinning in how you do or do not 
celebrate Christmas. You say, Steve, that is not the way to end this. It is when my goal is to make disciples. Because this is going to be a place where we welcome believers who do not see things the way we do. Figure out. If you're weak, come tell me how I'm causing you to sin, and I will change my behavior and make it right with you. But if there is no sin involved, just your opinion, then you are strong. And you be kind to your weak pastor who lacks spiritual maturity and understanding and get me to heaven. Don't judge me to hell. And I will do the same to you. Because you matter more than my opinion. And I matter more than your opinion. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the mutual submission of the individual members of the body of Christ one to another. So how are you going to celebrate Christmas? In a way that cares for the other. Are you going to celebrate Christmas? In a way... Are you trying to give me an echo? I think, I, I know, it was pretty cool, wasn't it? It was a repeat. Would you stand? I'm done. You're meant to go home thinking. Can we lift our hands and our voices to the Lord and ask him to help us? We have an awesome responsibility in front of us to create a place where all are welcome, where God can do his work. Jesus, help us tonight. God, oh, Lord, you help us. Help us, help us, because we have such trouble with this, Lord. So help us, Jesus. Help us, challenge us, Lord. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord. God, I thank you for your love for us. I thank you that you descended into this place. And God, you were offended by so much, but you looked beyond it. You reached for us because we mattered more than what was comfortable for you. God, help us, Lord. Help this congregation to internalize your word here tonight. Help us, Lord, that whether we rewrap Christmas by refraining or we rewrap Christmas by embracing or somewhere in between, we do so in a manner that remembers the other matters more than self. In Jesus' name. Everybody say amen. amen. You are dismissed in Jesus' name.